Today is our fifth conversation in a series that we're calling Turning Points. And uh, I'm going to ask while you're up here looking handsome, Bill, if you would, uh, kick us off this morning. Can you read the passage for us? So it's 2 Kings chapter 20, uh, verses 12 through 21. If you have a Bible, it's going to be, you know, quarter of the way in. This is an Old Testament book. Um, it will be on the screen for you this morning, or it will be on your screen if you're at home. And uh, I, I reserve the right to interrupt you, Bill. So hold that microphone up and, and let's read it. Second uh, Kings 20, 12 through 21. I, I practiced because, you know, the names. <laughs> yeah, there's some weird names, I know. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was his in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, his armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hold on, let me interrupt you there for one second, Bill. So I want you to make note, uh, the, the envoys or these messengers came from Babylon. We'll, we'll point this out in just a second, but, but remember, uh, the ascendant power in the world at this point is Assyria. These envoys came from Babylon. And Isaiah makes a startling prediction here, uh, which is really the centerpiece of this passage, I'm convinced, for the author of 2 Kings. Okay, keep reading, Bill. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah rested with his ancestors, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Let me pray. Uh, Father, I pray that this morning you would speak. Your word would be in evidence here in the room and also um, multiplied in our hearts. Oh, we receive what you have to say to us today. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. Bill, thank you so much. Drop that microphone back over there if you would. Uh, I want you to think about how much we uh, love a sure thing. We love a sure thing. I, I saw a, a teaser. I don't know if you've seen this movie or seen the teaser, but there's a new movie on Amazon called The Tomorrow War, and evidently it's a, a time travel movie, uh, Chris 
Pratt is in it, and the teaser I saw is a scene of Chris Pratt, and he looks at uh, supposedly the first person that he saw when he traveled into the future, and his first question to them was, do the, do the Dolphins ever win the Super Bowl? And if they do, uh, what was the score and what's the spread? Because we love a sure thing. I'll, I'll bet you that you have often wanted to be able to go back in time and drop all of your money on that exact stock at that exact price point. I'll, I'll bet there have been times in, in your life when you have wanted to know for certain, is, is this the man that, that I should marry to bring me the, the greatest happiness? Because we love a sure thing, and why not? A sure thing is a sure thing. There's, there, there are no worries. There's no mystery. I believe the reason the author of 2 Kings included the account that Bill read for us this morning was to show us the certainty of God's Word. It's a sure thing. God's Word is certain. It's inevitable. It's inexorable. God's Word will come to pass eventually. God's declarations will be served always. And that's critically important for us to remember. We're going to take a look at that in a second, how that works, what that looks like in our lives. But I also want to point out that this passage does something else equally important. It, it points to, in fact, it, it, it begs for a solution to our ultimate problem. <laughs> in that sense, it couldn't be more epic. This, this passage increases the tension that we feel throughout our reading of the Old Testament. You'll, you'll get it when, I, when we get there. And honestly, I think this tension is at the very center of our lives. At the end of today, I'm going to explain and, and tell you how that tension resolves itself. But before we do that, let's go back to about 690 B.C. 690 B.C. So look at this map, if you would. Uh, you'll notice in the map, remember, Assyria is the ascendant superpower in the world. And I want you to look at all of the green, the, the dark green or the, I don't know what you call it, the smaller green is uh, early Assyria. And by the time we get to the time of Hezekiah, that lime green that has leaked all over the world, that is now current Assyria. You really can't see it very well on this map, but there's a little spot of yellow. Check it out, near the, down near the Mediterranean Sea, sort of bottom center left, that's Judah. The, uh, the kind of lone outstanding outpost. Uh, Assyria has marched through the ancient Near East parts of Asia, some of North Africa by this point in history. They've conquered, in fact, they overwhelmed the northern kingdom of Israel. They've also marched further south. They swept through much of Judah, but they fell short of conquering Jerusalem. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, and, and God had miraculously intervened and Jerusalem was saved and, and Assyria ended up having to withdraw from Jerusalem, at which point their king, Sennacherib, was killed by his own children, just as God had predicted. It's also worth noting that Assyria had successfully engaged Babylon at this point in history. And, and what will eventually be Babylon is if you can find the Persian Sea and trace it up, that, that's going to be the center of Babylon. They had subdued Babylon, and they were at this point exacting taxes from Babylon in effect, Babylon was part of the Assyrian uh, Empire at this point. It's important to note. 
I want you to also look at this timeline for perspective. We're not going to go over this very much, but look up at the top. Assyria, those are the Assyrian kings. And if you can find Sennacherib on there, that's the period that we're talking about. If you come down, you can see Hezekiah. That's where we are in this timeline. Now, this is our last Sunday with Hezekiah. This is the end of Hezekiah's reign that we're talking about today. You see the prophet Isaiah, it's got him situated on the timeline as well. This is about, let's say, 690 B.C. Now, last week, Bill Russell covered the incident recounted for us at the beginning of 2 Kings 20, in which Hezekiah was deathly ill. Isaiah came to him and told him he was going to die. And then God intervened, and God healed him, and God gave Hezekiah 15 more years of life. And as a confirmation of the healing, God gave Hezekiah this remarkable, supernatural, uh, confirming sign. And evidently, Hezekiah's illness was, was widely known outside, even outside of Judah. It also seems that the word of the healing and the, the miraculous sign was broadcast throughout the world as well because... 2 Chronicles chapter 32 refers to this same incident. It covers this same incident. And uh, when the Babylonian emissaries came to visit Hezekiah, and there in 2 Chronicles uh, 32, the author tells us that the Babylonian messengers came to confirm the reports that they had heard about the miraculous sign. So it was the report of the shadow moving backwards, if you remember the sign, that really attracted their attention even more than Hezekiah's healing. So that's the setting or the passage that Bill read for us. King Hezekiah had regained his strength. Jerusalem had been saved, and it seemed to be experiencing a period of boom at this point in their history, both socially and economically. And this group from King Merodach Baladan of Babylon came to visit Hezekiah. If you were a little confused about exactly what was going on in the passage as Bill read it, uh, you shouldn't worry. So is everyone else, really. First of all, why did this group come from Babylon to Jerusalem? Now, some scholars have suggested that this was a spying mission, that uh, King Merodach Baladan may have commissioned a group to find out whatever they could about Judah. You know, are they a friend? Are they a foe? Can they be conquered? Some scholars believe this was a simple gesture of goodwill, uh, perhaps even motivated in part by genuine spiritual curiosity. We don't know the makeup of the messenger party. Perhaps there were genuine spiritual seekers in the group. Maybe someone had told King Merodach Beladan about Hezekiah's experience and even expressed interest in checking it out. You know, honorable king, I've heard this tale from the land of Judah about uh, their, the incredible activity of their God. I, I'd love to go check it out for us. Perhaps a letter and a gift from you would be the exact entry that I need. And of course, I'll bring back a report of everything I hear and see. Uh, but I tend to agree with the Bible students who suggest that this group came with the hopes of building an alliance with Hezekiah against the Assyrians. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. The whole story of the illness and the miraculous sign presented them the perfect opportunity to make an overture of friendship. Hey, King Hezekiah, we heard you were sick. We also heard that your God healed you and provided a sign to confirm the healing. We just, we just want to wish you well, and we want to hear about that story. Oh, by the way, speaking of our mutual enemy, the Assyrians, you know, that kind of thing. Whatever their reason for coming, King Hezekiah obviously appreciated the show of goodwill. So much so that he used the occasion to take the Babylonian entourage 
on a tour of his entire estate and his net worth. We assume he didn't give them all the passwords, but clearly he gave them a thorough tour of his real estate holdings, his stock portfolio. He even brought up his personal and corporate bank account information. To quote Hezekiah, quote, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among all my treasures that I did not show them, end quote. Scholars are again divided on their interpretations of why Hezekiah might have done this. Uh, some suggest that this was an effort at deal making. Some suggest that this was uh, simply naivete and it was undoubtedly very unwise. Others have suggested there was more than a little pride involved in this tour that Hezekiah was showing off. Uh, perhaps Hezekiah was the kind of person who could be easily coaxed into prideful displays, maybe over displays. Well, now that you mention it, just look how wealthy I am. And that Second Chronicles account of this incident, it seems to confirm that last option. I want you to listen to Second Chronicles 32, 24 through 26. L listen to this part of that account. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. It's from 2 Chronicles. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Now, then Hezekiah repented of his pride, of his heart, and, and as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath didn't come on them during the days of Hezekiah. After the messengers left, Isaiah came to visit. Now, I, I don't know, but I suspect that Hezekiah was happy to see him. Hello, Isaiah. Wait till you hear the news. I, I, I got an opportunity this weekend to brag about God. We had a group from Babylon visit, and it was awesome. I showed them everything. They were very impressed. What did you show them? Isaiah asked. Oh, uh, I took them on a thorough tour of everything. There's nothing I didn't show them. Hello, Mr. Fox, let me show you around my hen house. Hello, Mr. Orphanage founder from Uzbekistan who just sent me an email. Let me send you some money and here's my bank account information in case you need it. What have you done, Hezekiah? So let's listen to what uh, Isaiah says again, verses 16 through 18 of chapter 20. Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You know, when Isaiah said, hear the word of the Lord, Hezekiah knew enough to listen. Hezekiah was the genuine article. According to uh, 2 Kings 18.5, if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember this, we, we touched on this. In, Hezekiah eight, uh, in 2 Kings 18.5, it says this, quote, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either, either before him or after him, end quote. So Hezekiah knew that when God spoke it, it was certain. 
Hezekiah knew that God's word is sure. It is inevitable. It is inexorable. So Hezekiah responded. And let me read verse 19. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Again, uh, commentators are divided on the spirit of this response. This may have been smug, self-serving, even childishness and, and a consent to what Isaiah had declared. Oh, okay, well, at least it's not going to happen to me. Or others suggest that Hezekiah turned Isaiah's prophecy into something like a prayer. In other words, he might have been acknowledging the certainty of God's word while at the same time expressing thanks that it would at least be delayed. And some suggest that this was just raw resignation. Hezekiah heard Isaiah's prophetic declaration and, and he learned to accept those as God's very word. They were certain, so here he surrendered to God's certain will. Whatever is behind Hezekiah's response, the author of 2 Kings wanted to remind us that God said this. I'm going to repeat that. Whatever is behind Hezekiah's response, the author of 2 Kings wanted to remind us that God said this. God told them this was coming repeatedly. And here, more than 100 years before it happened, God spoke it with finality. You won't find a serious historian, by the way, believer or skeptic, who doesn't recognize this is literally a word from Isaiah, the prophet. And that's important. Often when you see these kinds of prophetic words in the Bible, skeptical historians will make the argument, well, that was obviously added in later to the text. The prophet didn't really say this at this point. That would be beyond the pale. Uh, but this text is without dispute. Isaiah told Hezekiah what would happen 100 years before it happened, and he told Hezekiah with definite finality. Did you notice how incredibly specific this word is? I alluded to this earlier when Bill was reading. God even told Hezekiah that it would be the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, who would carry off all of their possessions and even the people of the land. That, that, that this was even possible at this point in history, was far from a widely held opinion. Remember, in 690 B.C., the Assyrians were the ascendant superpower in this whole part of the world, and there were no rivals. The Babylonians were 75 or 80 years away from defeating the Babylonians. But God's word is sure. God's word is more certain than Hezekiah's wealth. It is more certain than the power of the Assyrian army. And Hezekiah knew it. That's why when the Assyrian king Sennacherib was threatening Jerusalem, Hezekiah went into the temple and beseeched God because he knew God's word is certain. That's why when the prophet Isaiah told a very sick Hezekiah that he was going to die, Hezekiah, Bill told us, turned his face toward the wall and cried out to God in anguish because God's word is certain, more certain than illness. And Hezekiah needed a different word from God. God's word is a sure thing. And that's why, that's why we expend considerable energy listening to and learning from the Bible. These stories and poems and letters and arguments are uniquely inspired by God. They are God's very word. And God's word is a sure thing. That's why we listen for what God is saying to us through our daily practice of devotion. 
That's why we lean in on Sunday mornings and we ask, you know, what are you saying to me today, God? Is there some change of course for me? Is there something I've forgotten? Is there some yes that I need to say that I haven't said yet? That's why we work at hearing from him. That's why we ask him when we, when we need an answer. Now, does this kind of exercise that I'm talking about ever feel ridiculous? Does, it, does this feel pointless? You know, God, what do you have for me? Does that ever feel ridiculous? Yes. At least it does to me. But does it ever feel like we're straining to hear and it's just silence, like we're making it up? Does it ever feel like we're speaking to the ceiling? Yes. At least it does to me. But, but we press through that doubt and we continue to ask, God, what are you saying? What have you got for me? Because we, like Hezekiah, know deep in our bones that God's word is sure. Diane and I are uh, doing a family budget right now and we're trying to plan out the next few years. I know this is an exercise that many of you engage in somewhat regularly. Well, while we're doing a budget, Diane and I uh, need to be cognizant of the certainty of God's Word in the most practical ways. Those questions need to be right in front of us. Our, our plans aren't certain. Our finances aren't certain, but God's Word is. So what are your priorities for us, God? What needs to be added this year? What needs to be subtracted? Is there more we can give? Is there more we can do? What are you saying to us? When Isaiah said, hear the word of the Lord, Hezekiah knew to listen because God's word is a sure thing. But here's the big question. If it hasn't occurred to you yet, if you sat with this story for a while, it would. Why didn't Hezekiah always respond this way? <laughs> Why wasn't this always foremost in his mind? Why, whenever Hezekiah faced a turning point, why didn't he always turn toward God in those times? Why didn't he always cry out to hear from God and to know God's word? Why wasn't, why wasn't he always focused on that, in no, no matter the circumstances? Why wasn't that always the center of his attention? Remember, Hezekiah was unparalleled in the history of Israelite kings and his trust in God. So why were there times when he seemed to have been trying to write his own script for what was going to happen? Why were there lapses of judgment? Why was there this swelling pride? I think we know the answer. <laughs> because Hezekiah is just like you and me. Think about it. We usually find it very easy to denounce those sins that we don't have. Just think about your pet peeve cultural concerns, those issues that get you amped up with righteous anger. And you may be right, but in our righteous anger, you and I are often in danger of ignoring the gigantic plank in our own eye. Or consider the prayerlessness of your life. How is God going to stir your heart and mind? How will he speak his word to you if you aren't ever listening? Or consider the pace of our lives, the overwhelming busyness. There's very little space. There's very little margin into which God can insert himself. There's literally no room for God's word in many of our lives. Almost every day, we are confronted with some kind of turning point. 
some kind of decision or some kind of inflection point, some kind of significant interaction. And at every turning point, we need to be looking for and listening for God's Word because God's Word is a sure thing. Hey, I'm thinking about changing careers. Well, what is God saying about that? Well, honestly, I have no idea. Well, by all means, don't do anything yet. Continue to listen until you get a sense of what God is saying because God's Word is sure. In 2 Kings 20, 2 Kings 20 brings us, this brings us to the end of Hezekiah's story. Next week, we'll be talking about King Manasseh. And uh, King Hezekiah's story ends kind of with a, with a whimper, doesn't it? The first part of chapter 20 that Bill talked about last week records how frail Hezekiah was. And the second part that we're talking about today records how faulty he was. Now look, Hezekiah was a dude, or whatever the kids are saying these days for pretty awesome. Uh, he, uh, he was, as we've said, he was very faithful overall. And he led Judah through one of her most severe trials, the, the Assyrian siege, through this severe trial successfully and with her faith intact. The kingdom prospered somewhat and enjoyed a small measure of uh, increased reputation. But chapter 20 reminds us that Hezekiah, even as faithful and as successful as he was, he was not the man. Not really. He, he had pretty dramatic failures of judgment and, and character, and, and he didn't get anywhere near realizing the dream of a fully restored international significant kingdom. At times, our unparalleled King Hezekiah was really just a mess. And that brings us back to our ultimate tension, doesn't it? First of all, um, that reminds us all of, of the most important principle that lays like a bedrock underneath every one of the stories that you read here. And, and we, need, we can't forget this principle, especially as we're reading the Old Testament. Here, here's, the, here's the bedrock principle. Hezekiah is not the hero here. David is not the hero of this story. Solomon is not the hero of this story. Moses is not the hero of this story. Peter, Paul, James, they're not the hero of this story. Jesus is. And he's the hero of our story as well. Let me back up for a second. I want to go all the way back to the time of Moses. This is, you know, this is eight or nine hundred years before the events that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, you've seen the Ten Commandments on television, so you know roughly the outlay of this. Or some of you are pretty serious Bible students. You know, Moses goes up on the mountain, hears from God, comes down with this remarkable set of commandments that up to this point in history were unique. The people had already turned away from God. They were worshiping an idol. Moses gets upset, breaks the, the tablets, and then he goes back up on the mountain for a second time to hear from God again. God again gives him uh, the tablets, and that's the context for a short passage I want to read for you, and this should be underlined in our Bibles because it's critical. It sets up for us a tension that we will, we will experience throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God tells, this is God speaking, and he tells Moses, essentially, the, the, he lays out the, the, the kind of core, he cut his wrist, this is what he bleeds, core of his nature. And this is what he says in uh, 
chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Again, this is an epic moment. This is God giving his commandments to his people. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. This is God. Passes in front of Moses proclaiming. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So on the one hand, gracious, loving, compassionate, overwhelmingly, titanically so. But then, on the other hand, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. On the one hand, God's great love and compassion, we see it on almost every page. On the other hand, God's perfection and his exacting justice, and these two things are in direct conflict with one another as it concerns our lives. Because God longs to love us and be gracious to us. He has created a universe in which that's what's designed to happen. He's created a universe by design so that we could be loved and love him in return, and yet we are a people who consistently come up short and act on the wrong side of God's exacting justice. Think of it like, like spiritual gravity. God created a world designed to facilitate perfect love and flawless, unbroken relationship between his creatures and between his creation and himself. And that's not the world in which we live. There was rebellion, there was violence, there was sin, and we are the children of that world distanced from God, at odds with God. And therefore, objects of his inevitable punishment, as certain as gravity, as much an essential fabric of the universe as gravity, God's judgment. And Hezekiah, as great as he was, wasn't perfect. He wasn't absolutely aligned with God all the time. Well, what's the big deal, Ed? Well, the big deal is you can walk and you can run and you can stroll and you can skip perfectly, never falling, never missing a step. But all you have to do is step off a cliff once and gravity takes over. And all of that effective walking and running does you no good. God's perfection and his justice is exacting. It is spiritual gravity. So uh, what are we to do? Because all of our goodness does us no good. The first time we step off the cliff, and what is God to do? This leaves him in a state where his plans are thwarted. The very pinnacle of his creation, us, we will live eternally separated from him because his justice is exacting. His love is at odds with his justice. How is this tension resolved? In Christ. It's resolved in Christ. Uh, you know, God is forever 
speaking to us in ways that we can understand. He's accommodating himself to us. He does it in, in his speech to us. He does it in his word. He does it in the images that he gives us. And in the ancient world, the principal image that he uses to explain to them who he is, this image drives the whole Old Testament, is the image of covenant because this was the, the way that, that nations made relationships with one another, businesses made relationships with one another in the ancient world. And, and, and there was a, a we believe there, there was a, a covenant ceremony that would happen in dramatic covenants between, let's say, greater kings and lesser kings. And they would go out somewhere, find, a, find an altar. They would take an animal and they would cut it in half. In fact, the word for covenant comes from the word cut. They would, they would cut the animal in half. And it was, this was in effect to signify, you know, we are, we're like one animal together that, that are separated because we're two separate countries, but you bring us together, we're the whole animal. It would also signify the greater king saying, you know, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. And if you don't keep your end of the covenant, this is what I'm going to do to you. And so God, throughout the Old Testament, uh, shows himself to his people like the greater king making a covenant with the lesser king and they consistently do not bear up their end of the covenant. And so God's exacting justice is inevitable. And it needs to be satisfied like spiritual gravity. What is God to do? Well, what we learn is that God satisfies both sides of the covenant his own side and ours and Jesus came and and in Jesus's mind he knew the significance of this and he knew the weight of this and he knew what was happening and in his heart he felt the the press of 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 God's expectation and God's plan and on his shoulders God the Father rested on God the Son all of my sin and the spiritual gravity that demands to be met. And Jesus fell off of the cliff uh, so that I didn't have to. So today we come like Hezekiah. We've done some good stuff, but we're a mess and and we've created mess around us. So, uh, what do we do now? He's made it easy. No, he's made it simple. We believe in him. We, we, we recognize that we're a mess, that we have not been perfectly aligned with him, and we believe. We accept and then, for every decision at every inflection point, at every turning point in our lives, we, we wait on his word because his word is sure. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us in the stillness. Your word is sure. It's certain. Lord, if there are any of us uh, listening in or any of us here this morning who have never stepped in, who've never trusted you, who've never believed in you, then 
I pray, Jesus, that you would speak in a way that we can understand and our hearts would be opened and we would accept that we would believe, that we would lean in with all our heart, our mind, and our strength. Lord, for the rest of us, we confess that we have not, we've been Hezekiah. We've been faithful at times, and and others we've been distracted. Forgive us, and this morning, this morning, we lock in on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.